the truth, that we can hold the truth in our hands. I'm thankful that we can have a relationship with the truth. I'm thankful for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ shed His blood on the cross of Calvary that we can have eternal life. I thank you that you love us that much. So, Father, I pray now you fill me with your spirit. Get me out of the way, Father. I pray that, again, it's your message that goes forth. It's not mine. It's your words that will be heard, not mine. I pray it's your voice that will be heard and not mine. I pray that you will receive all the glory, honor, and praise in it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Heavenly Father, or Heavenly Father, pray again. Uh, turn your Bibles to John, John chapter 14, John chapter 14. Uh, we're going to be in, uh, we're just looking at two, two verses uh, this morning, um, verses 5 and 6. The Bible says, Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So as, you, as I said, we can derive three questions from our text this morning. But before we, we come up with those three questions, uh, I want to start by looking at the, the very first question that, that is asked in verse 5 by Thomas. Thomas says, how can we know the way? How can we know the way. Uh, at some point in all of our lives, we didn't know the way. So how do you find the way? We can try to figure out on our own, or we can ask directions, right? Uh, the only way we're ever going to know the way is through asking directions. I mean, do you know the way? If you know the way, then somebody should be able to ask you, and you should be able to show them the way, right? How can we know the way? That's what he asks. We need to ask directions. Uh, and we live in a world today where, thankfully, you know, many of us have found ourselves in situations. I remember in the old days, you know, when you were traveling somewhere, you had to, you had to have a map to get where you were going. And as you would travel, you would be looking at that map and making sure you make all the right turns to get to your destination. And... You know, sometimes us guys, we can't find the way, and our spouses are in there like, just stop and ask for directions. No, no, I'll get us there. I don't need directions. I can figure it out on my own. You know, our pride gets the better of us at times. Uh, uh, guys, today, we're thankful for GPS. I know I'm thankful for GPS. Uh, I, 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 I find myself to be a pretty good map reader, but uh, I like GPS because with GPS, you just pull out your phone, uh, you grab your phone, you can go to the little Maps app, you tap on it, you type in the address of where you want to go, and it gives you typically three or four uh, this morning, you know, I mean, uh, just trying to, you know, or when we first came here the first time, it gave me three alternate routes to get to Galilee Baptist Church. You know, there's multiple ways. There's the fastest way, sometimes there's a better way, but that's what's neat. With GPS, we have directions. And, you know, when we get directions, it's, it's nice when we have confidence in those directions. I mean, you don't want to go up to somebody, uh, maybe this has happened to you, but you go up and you ask somebody directions, and they give you directions, and after you left and you followed their directions, you're either, I'm a numbskull and totally messed those up, or that guy totally was messing with us. And you find yourself on the other end of town from where you're trying to get. You know, 
Uh, because maybe you ask directions, you know, when you ask somebody directions, you should always say, hey, are you local? Are you from here? No, I'm from Oregon. <laughs> well, no, I don't want to ask you directions. You probably don't even know where you're going. So we want to make sure that we have confidence in our directions. And honestly, GPS is a great way to find your way. I remember one time when I was down in, uh, uh, I was still in the guard, and I had to go to training in Washington, D.C., I had to go down to the D.C. area. I had to do one day of training at Andrews Air Force Base, and then I was going to spend four days at what's called Crystal City. Uh, it's right across the street from Reagan International Airport. Uh, and, and, and in the government's infinite wisdom, I had four days at Crystal City and one day at Andrews. They flew me into Baltimore International and um, put me up for five days at Andrews Air Force Base. So I had to spend four days driving from Andrews Air Force Base down to Crystal City down in the D.C. area. Um, needless to say, I was quite nervous about that because uh, I have heard a lot of nightmares about the D.C. traffic. And so when I got to the airport to get my rental car, the lady said, would you like a GPS? And I said, praise the Lord, yes. I would love to have a GPS. I had printed off maps, and I wanted to be sure I knew where I was going because I'd never been to Crystal City. This was going to be my first trip down there. So I said, well, so they got me... Uh, they got me the GPS. I went down to Andrews Air Force Base, no problem. Got me there right away. Perfect, uh, perfect instructions. But then I had to get to Crystal City. My first time down, I get up that morning. I decide to leave early because I want to make sure I'm there on time. And thankfully I did because as I'm heading down the road and I'm getting close, I know I'm getting close, and I go by an exit and I see that exit and I was like, man, I swore the map told me to turn on that exit. But GPS says, keep going, just keep going. So I'm driving and I'm moving on down the road. And all of a sudden I look to my left and there's the Pentagon. And I'm like, I'm not even supposed to be nowhere near the Pentagon. Um, so I pull over, I get turned around, I turn off the GPS at this point, I don't want it telling me anything. And I go back to the exit that I thought I was supposed to take, looked over my maps, and sure enough, once I got off on that exit, uh, I was able to find my way the rest of the way. So even GPS isn't perfect. Um, things change. The construction happens, and GPSs don't get updated, and you don't have the most current. But we want to make sure that when we receive directions, we want to make sure that we're confident in those directions uh, that we receive. So we want to make sure it's coming from a competent source. It's coming from a competent source. There's like the old story told of the African Muslim who became a Christian. His friends asked, why have you become a Christian? He answered, well, it's like this. Suppose you were going down the road and suddenly the road forked in two directions and you didn't know which way to go. There at the fork were two men, one dead and one alive. Who would you ask directions for? We have all found ourselves at some point wanting to know the way. Maybe you're here this morning and you do know the way. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know the way. But we've all found ourselves at this point of where Thomas asked the question, how can we know the way? This illustration points out it is important that we ask the right person for directions. You don't want to just ask anybody how to get to heaven. Many people are looking to dead men for their faith while we as Christians look to a living God, the man Christ, Jesus. So, my proposition to you this morning is, 
Do you know the way? Do you know the way? This morning I want to show you three direct questions Jesus answers that will help each of us to know the way. And the first question we're going to look at is, how can I be saved? How can I be saved? In verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way. But how does the world tell us we can be saved? What does the world say about heaven? The world would have us to believe there are many ways to heaven. There are all kinds of alternate paths, like our GPS shows us. There's a different road to get to these directions. The world would have you say, Islam has their way to heaven. And that Buddha, the Buddhists have their way. And the Hindus, and the Catholics, and Christians, uh, Baptists have their way to heaven. Mormons have their way to heaven. The world would have you believe that all these different routes lead to the same God. We're all worshiping the same God. We just do it in a different way. We're on a different path. That's what the world would have us to say. Within Christianity, those of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ have created alternate roads. Well, yes, you need Jesus, but you need Jesus and you need to be baptized. Or you need Jesus and, and you need to be you need some kind of works. You need to be a good person. That's what the world would have us to think. See, the problem is with man, man likes to come up with his own ways. Man likes to say, it is my way or the highway. It's my way or the highway. But Proverbs 14 verse 12 warns us, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. It is my way. It may seemeth right that my way may, may seemeth right. Is it, people, Muslims may think that they know the way to heaven, but the end thereof are the ways of death. God tells us in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God says, you might want to take the highway. That's what he's saying there. My ways are higher than your ways. My way or the highway? God's saying, take the highway. I love... What John Martin says in, 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 this, in his commentary, God's, he says, God's talking about uh, Isaiah 55, 8 9 here, God's compassion on those who turn to him comes because his thoughts and ways are far superior to human thoughts and ways, which, are, uh, which in fact are evil. God's plan is something people would have never dreamed of. That really spoke volumes to me when I was studying it. God's plans are ways that man would never have dreamed of. See, um, and that kind of took me down a different turn than I really expected to go with this, but uh, that's why I like to let God guide and lead. Uh, the ways of God seem like foolishness to men. See, when we think of Jesus Christ and what he did for us, Man looks at that, unsaved man looks at that and says, are you telling me that your God put on flesh and became a man 
and lived amongst his own creation. He created you, but then he came and lived amongst his own creation? Are you telling me he would, he gave up heaven to come live with you? Are you telling me that, that this God of yours was born as a baby? I mean, uh, so you're telling me God pooped in his diaper? Probably. He came to be a man. He came and he, he humbled himself to the point that he went through infancy. He went through all of adolescence. He became a young man. But ultimately, he became a, a grown man who lived for us. He, he, he was the most high who put himself, as you remember the last time I preached, who put himself on the bottom rung. He lowered himself and became poor. He was rich but became poor for us. That seems like foolishness. What kind of God needs to do that? There's got to be an easier way. But on top of that, not only did he live amongst us, but he gave his life. He was, uh, he was beaten on the cross. He was wounded for our iniquities. He was innocent. He did nothing wrong. But he came and gave his life. It seems like foolishness to man. The Bible makes it clear. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can we know them, because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 3.18-19 adds, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may be wise. I love that statement. Let him become a fool, that he may be wise. I mean, God speaks down on foolishness. But when we look at his wisdom as foolishness, he's saying, well, then become a fool. Become a fool and seek my foolishness. Because man's foolishness is foolishness. And he adds here, for the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he taketh the wise in their own conceit. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. Um, and then lastly, I want to share 1 Corinthians 18. Um, in your handout, I only gave you 1 Corinthians 18 and 25. Um, but listen, I'm going to read everything in between here. I want you to hear uh, what Paul tells us in these passages. In verse 18 it says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolishness the wisdom of this world? The wisdom of our world, what the world would tell us is wisdom, is foolishness to God. For after that, in that wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. And see, that's what happens. We become so wise, we don't need God anymore. We, we're going to do it our way. It's my way or the highway. Um, let me leave off here. It pleased God, the foolishness, or yeah, so for after that, in that the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews, a stumbling block. 
The Jews couldn't believe that their God was coming back to die on a cross. They were looking for their Messiah to deliver them from the Romans. They didn't think that God was coming back for all of mankind. He was coming back for them. That's why they, it's a stumbling block to them. And unto the Greeks, foolishness. Gentiles, why would God come back for us? But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And then verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. Solomon, outside of Jesus Christ, of all created beings, Solomon was the wisest man to ever walk the earth. It was what he asked for, and God granted him that gift. Just understand that if God could be foolish... If he could be foolish, his foolishness would be wiser than anything Solomon ever con could conceive. And therefore, that's why we go to God for wisdom and not the world. And as I said earlier, man likes to say it is my way or the highway. And Jesus says it's the highway. You want to take the highway. And let's take a look at how, what Jesus says with regards to this first question, how can I be saved? Jesus says, I am the way. We thought a little tiny word could be so important, but that word the indicates that there is, that is, there is one way. There is only one way. It is the way. He doesn't say, I am, uh, I am one of the ways, or I am one of multiple ways. He said, I am the way. Jesus is the way, and it indicates one way to heaven. Jesus is the only way. So how do we know the way. We need to follow the road signs. We need to follow the road signs. And it all starts at a stop sign. It all starts at a stop sign. See, every, at one point in our lives, we were all heading down a road. And if you've never trusted Jesus Christ, you're still heading down that road. You're heading down the road of sin. The Bible makes it very clear that that is a wide path to destruction. And there are many people on it. We're going to see that verse in a little bit. But you're on that road, and you're going to come to a stop sign. And at some point while you're on that road, you're going to hear the gospel. You're going to hear how to get to heaven. And it starts with hitting that stop sign, and you need repentance. You need to turn around. Repentance means to turn around, to turn around and go the other way because you're headed down the road of sin, and you need to turn around and turn back to God. Repentance is key to salvation. Luke 13, 3 says, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. You have to repent. You have to admit you're a sinner. Turn around because you're going the wrong way. No one comes to Jesus until they acknowledge that their way is the wrong way. Romans 3, 23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible makes it clear there is none righteous, no, not one. We're all sinners. Because we're all sinners, we do not deserve to go to heaven because sin demands punishment. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Well, that, that indicates that, yes, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they were going to have to face physical death. But if we don't get right with God and we don't come to Jesus, we face eternal death, eternal separation from God our Father. We will face the wrath of God. 
And unfortunately, there are a lot of people that won't turn around. Matthew 7, 13 through 14, the, ma the passage I alluded to earlier. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. If you're here this morning and you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're on that narrow path. You know the way. And how many people do you walk by every day that don't know the way? And the only way they're going to find that way is if you have your headlights on. Let your light shine. We will never reach this lost world if we look like the world. If we're driving down the narrow path and we have our headlights off, no one's going to see us. No one's going to see Jesus. Because that's the light that should be shining in your life. It should be the light of Jesus Christ. So we need to make sure our lights are shining, we have our headlights on so people can find it. Now, if you're that person, and you've come to the stop sign, and you've turned around, and you can admit that you are a sinner, and you need a Savior, the next thing you do is you start heading the other direction. You'll come to a yield sign. And when you get to that yield sign, you need to yield to Jesus Christ. One must yield to Christ as he is the only way to heaven. Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus shed his blood and gave his life on the cross of Calvary so we could receive eternal life. All we have to do is reach out and take the gift. Accept the precious gift of Jesus Christ. See, as I said, Romans 6.23 said, For the wages of sin is death. But there's a happy ending. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The second part of that verse. The gift of God is eternal life. But it's through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice it doesn't say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord and baptism. Through Jesus Christ and our Lord and good works. Through Jesus Christ our Lord and just be a good person. It's through Jesus Christ our Lord. Any other verse that seems to contradict that, you need to study it out a little more. There is a passage in, in John that says you must, be, uh, you must trust Jesus and be baptized to be saved. Well, right there. See, you have to be baptized. No, but if you read right after it, it says, because if you reject Jesus or reject Jesus and suffer eternal damnation. I'm paraphrasing it, but... Why did it mention baptism in the first part? If baptism is required for salvation, a rejection of baptism would, re would send you to hell. But they don't mention it. Make sure they read alike. If they don't, then take the word that's missing out of the passage in front of it, and you've got your answer. Baptism is not a requirement for heaven. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 sums that up. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There is nothing in and out of ourselves that we can do to get saved other than just accepting the precious gift of Jesus Christ. You do not have to do anything for it. You just have to put your faith in Jesus Christ. I love John 3, verse 36. really sums up everything I said. Um, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting, everlasting life. And he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. 
everything we just talked about. It sums up uh, all that we've talked about. You must trust Christ. He is the only way. There's a story told about a boy and his aunt and uncle that took a trip to Hampton Court. This will kind of really take everything that we've been talking about and, and just make it more applicable. They went to this, on this trip to Hampton Court in the outskirts of London. It's a famous palace built by Cardinal Wolsey and later confiscated by Henry VIII. On the grounds, there is a maze of hedges, and for a small fee, one can go in and wander around and possibly get lost. The hedges are high, the lanes are narrow, and constantly intersected by other lanes wandering off in all directions. In the middle of the maze is an open space with some seats where, thoroughly lost, a person can sit down and rest. Well, it didn't take long, uh, it didn't take long for the boy and his aunt and uncle to get lost. After arriving back in the middle of the maze, a number of times, they began to think there was no way out. At last, a park attendant appeared. You people lost, he asked. Indeed they were. Follow me, he said. And they did. He took a turn this way and a turn that way. Then he took a turn that way and another turn this way. And suddenly, they were outside. What made the difference? Giving up their own efforts, admitting they were lost, trusting and following the one who knew the way. We need to trust the one who knows the way. If you're here this morning and you've trusted in that one, you know the way. But if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, today could be your day of salvation. You need to know the way. And you need to know from somebody who knows the way. So this morning we have answered the question, how can I be saved? Now let's look at our second question. How can I be sure? How can I be sure? Jesus says, I am the truth. I am the truth. What's the world say about truth today? Truth defined, when I looked up the word truth and uh, looked up the definition of truth, it says that which is true or in accordance with fact or reality. That which is true or in accordance with fact or reality. That's a really good definition. I'll be honest with you. That's a, that really speaks to what truth is. But we live in a world today that, well, things change in our world, and therefore they've added now to this definition. They've added the f that it is also a fact or belief that is accepted as true. A fact or belief that is accepted as true. See, we live in a, a culture today that does not believe in absolute truth. And, and therefore, if we don't believe in absolute truth, we believe truth is relative, uh, we believe today that what might be true for you isn't true for me. So regardless of what my birth certificate might say, uh, what the doctor told my parents when I was born, regardless of what biology would tell us, Though that everyone would say, I'm a man, if I don't accept that and I identify as a woman, that is truth. That is my truth. Because what's true for me isn't true for you, and what's true for you isn't true for me. That's what the world would teach us today. Let me try to illustrate this another way. I'm going to make three statements. I'm going to ask you three, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to make three statements, and I want you to determine which, if any, of these statements are truth. 
if any of these would be considered truth. The first statement is, this church that we are in this morning is a Baptist church. Statement two, Donald Trump is currently the President of the United States. And statement three, this piano over here is black. Were any of the statements that I made truth? It's a trick question. None of the statements I made were truth. Let me clarify. The statements that I made, of the statements I made, two were correct and one was incorrect. But they weren't truth. Well, well then, Brother Jim, what, what is truth? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because we're going to go find out from Jesus what truth is. Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the truth. To better clarify this, I want you to look in your handout. There's two verses I have in there. Two key verses. John 1.1, 1, 1, John 17.17. 17. Great verses to memorize if you haven't. And what's really cool about their correlation, they're easy to remember which verses. John 1.1, 1, 1, John 17, verse 17. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 17.17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy Word is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth. Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. Go back to John 1, 1. I am, Jesus, uh, in the beginning, the word uh, became, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So, what I want you to understand is the Greek word for word is logos. In John 17, 17, and John 1, 1, Logos is used in both, both instances, or word. So I'm looking at that, and I'm like, okay, it's the same word, but is it the, does it mean? So we know that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. When we go down to John 1.14, and the word became flesh, word is capitalized. We're talking about Jesus Christ. But John 17.17, 17, the word, it's the same word, the same Greek word used, but it's not capitalized. Why is that? Because it is not referring to Jesus Christ in 1717. It's referring to the Word of God. Now, I want to make sure you understand something very clearly here. I am not deifying the Word of God. This is not deity. It tells us about deity. It tells us about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What I want you to understand is... The only way you're ever going to know the truth is if you get into the Word of God to learn about the Word, who is truth. Jesus is truth. And the only way you're ever going to know about Him and have a relationship with Him is through His Word. He's not going to audibly speak to you. He is, that those days are over. Sign gifts are done and put away with. We, are, we walk by faith, not by sight. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. I love what Edwin Blum says about this in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. He says, The truth is communicated in the Word, which is both personal and propositional. As the message about Jesus was heard, believed, and understood, the disciples' hearts and minds were captured. This change in their thinking resulted in changes in their living. The same is true of believers today. 
as they appropriate God's Word in their lives, they are sanctified, set apart for God, and changed in their living in order to honor God. God's message set the apostles apart from the world. They didn't have the Word of God. Who was the message? Jesus Christ was the message for the apostles. We have the Word of God. So that they would do His will, not Satan's. The idea here is that as we spend more time in the Bible, we will grow closer to Jesus, of whom we should desire to have a relationship with. Jesus is not merely teaching the truth. He is the truth. You know what the problem is with Christians today? The problem with Christians today, the reason we're in the mess we are in in our nation today is because Christians don't want the truth. Christians don't want the truth. They don't want to open up the Word of God because there's things in here that, frankly, if I got in here and started reading this and allowed the Holy Spirit to convict me, I might be doing some of these things that make me uncomfortable. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. You, you, you mean I have to go up and tell total strangers about Jesus Christ? I'm not comfortable with that. There's things in here that you know, when we consider, if we would just do what the Bible tells us, you know, oh, he, we're supposed to meditate in God's Word day and night. We should be reading our Bibles daily. If this is the only place that you get any Bible, is you, you come to the Three to Thrive, and, and you come to your midweek service, and that's all you're getting, you're getting more than most. But I'm telling you right now, it's still not enough. Each and every one of us should be reading our Bibles daily and let, let the Holy Spirit lead and guide in your life. But Christians don't want to do that. The mess we're in today is because parents aren't doing what they should. The Bible says, um, I think I have the verse here, Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I want you to understand, that's not a promise. God's not making a promise there. Children still have to make their own decisions. And I'll have to tell you, this was very convicting to me. Because as a young man, when I got saved, I was failing my children. I was not training them up in the way they should go. Oh, sure, I, I took my kids to uh, Sunday school and the main service, and they got to go to children's church, and we would go back for evening service, and we were at midweek services. We were involved in the ministry, but ultimately, I, that was to me, that's the minimum. That's the minimum. I mean, I'm telling you, if you're not bringing your kids to Sunday school, if, if you're not uh, faithful to the services during the week, you're not even doing the minimum. But where I was failing was I wasn't praying with my kids. I wasn't uh, reading my Bible. My kids weren't seeing me read my Bible. Why, would I why, why should I be shocked when my kids grow up not reading their Bibles? And not praying. And, and as they got older, dad surrendered to ministry and I started doing these things and I started, but I started late. And therefore, you know, it's very convicting. But we live in a world today where kids are walking away from God in droves. 
millennials don't even, majority of millennials don't believe in God. And so that's where we find ourselves. People don't want the truth because sometimes the truth hurts. It hurts us, and we feel like it may hurt others. But we need to understand, truth is always exclusive. It's always dogmatic. And it's always intolerant of non-truth. Because what the world teaches is non-truth. And we should not be apologizing for the truth of God's word. What we have to do as Christians is we have to share the truth in love. We, we shouldn't be screaming at people that they're, they're going to burn in hell. No, we need to love them and say, we don't want you to burn in hell. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know the peace that I have. I want you to know the truth. The world is not truth. The problem with Christians today is we want to walk with one foot in the world, one foot in church. One foot in the world, one foot in church. Jesus said when we, we are lukewarm, that makes us lukewarm Christians. Uh, you know what that is? When you have one foot in the world and one foot in the church, um, you're a camouflaged Christian. Because the world doesn't recognize you as a Christian. They don't see Jesus when you walk that way. They see the worldly side because you're in the world, you're being a part of the world when you're with them, and you're being that holy person at church. James 4, 4 warns us of that. Ye adulterers and adulteresses. That's pretty hard words right there. Know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You're walking with one foot in the world and one foot in church. doesn't matter if that foot, when that foot's in church. In God's eyes, you're an enemy. That's hard to swallow. Uh, you, that may seem offensive. Well, if that's how you feel about it, Pastor Jim, I'm, I'm out of here. That's not how I feel about it. That's how God feels about it. And we have a way of fixing it. We can know the truth. We are, so if we are an enemy of God, we will never know the truth. Think about Pilate. Pilate stood with Jesus. He stood in the presence. You know, a lot of people said, ooh, Jesus was in the presence of Pilate. I'm sorry, Pilate was in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Okay? If anybody should have been bowing, it should be him. And he will. He did already. But Pilate, I love this in John verse 18, verse, uh, in chapter 18, verses 37 and 38, it says, Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born. And for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? Truth was standing right in front of his face, and he didn't see it. He couldn't see the truth because of the world because he was so caught up in the world. And we have to be careful as Christians, because Pilate had the opportunity to set him free. What did he say? He told the Jews, I see no wrong in this man. He, this man has done nothing wrong. I'm going to scourge him and let him go. He's done nothing wrong. But the screaming and the yelling kept coming, crucify him, crucify him. We want Barabbas. Crucify him. And what do we do in the world? 
We're listening to the world tell us, you don't have to be what you were born as. You can be whatever you want to be. We're listening to the world say, you know what? Get out. Just get a divorce. The world will shout and shout and shout. And are we going to be like Pilate and give in to the world? Or are we going to stay faithful to the truth and decide and let Jesus tell us what to do? Let Jesus decide what truth is, not the world. It said, only those who are of the truth know Jesus. They're the only ones that can actually hear his voice. But may I say to you this morning, not everyone that is saved hears his voice. Why is that? Well, if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, you've experienced justification. You, you, you are saved. You're justified. You, Jesus has covered your sins with his blood. And so when God looks at you, he sees Jesus' righteousness, not your sin. And so, therefore, you're going to heaven. Your ticket's punched. You can go to heaven. But a lot of Christians today punch that ticket and think they can just live their life however they want. The world's telling them to do all this stuff. Go ahead and do whatever you want. But Paul warns us, what? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. We're to turn from that sin. We're to become different. But those people get saved and they never spend time in his word and they can't hear his voice. You will never hear his voice if you're not in his word. You will never have a relationship with Jesus Christ if you're not in his word. I dare say, if you never spoke to your spouse, what kind of relationship would that be? If you never listened to your spouse, what kind of relationship would that be? When we open the word of God and read it, we're listening to our God speak to us. And when we get on our hands and knees, we are speaking to our God. What kind of relationship would you have if you never spoke to your friends or to your family members or to your spouse? We don't do it to them. Why do we do it to our God? So without sanctification, without getting into the Word, we can never have that relationship with Jesus and we will never know the truth and we will never hear His voice. George Washington Carver became one of the most honored and respected scientists of his generation by focusing on one very simple peanut. Eventually, he would discover some 300 uses for this most basic and seemingly insignificant common food. Carver attributed all of his scientific discoveries to God. He once said that he had asked God to explain the universe to him, but that he felt God saying that was too large a task. When he asked for something he could handle, Carver said that God directed his attention to the peanut. His focus and search for value produced amazing results. Carver never doubted that God was rewarding his faith and effort. And he said, without God to draw aside the curtain, I would be helpless. In a day when many people deny the truth even exists as an absolute reality, those of us who know God need to be more focused than ever on seeking for it. Truth is not an abstract concept that varies with time and place and can never be fully known. Truth is part of the very nature of God. It's part of the very nature of God. Proverbs 25, verse 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, 
But the honor of kings is to search out a matter. The honor of kings is to search out a matter. We must be digging into the scriptures. We must seek the truth. Do you know the truth? You can. All you have to do is open this book and get to know him. You can know the truth. And once you begin to develop your relationship with Jesus, you too can be the truth. Once you grow in Christ, you begin to be like Christ. You begin to live like Christ. And therefore, those around you begin to see Christ through your life. Which brings us to our third and final question. Up to this point, we have answered two basic questions. The first being, how can I be saved? The second, how can I be sure? And our final question is, how can I be satisfied? How can I be satisfied? Verse 6, Jesus says, I am the life. I am the life. What does the world tell us about life? There are some preachers out there today that tell you you're living your best life now. Oh yeah, this is the best it's going to get. So live it. Live it up. There are those in the world who tell you there is no God. So live life to the fullest. They have this idea that I'm going to do everything I can because once I die, that's it. I've just failed to exist. There's nothing after that. That's what the world would teach you uh, about life. But Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works, and there is none that doeth good. No, because when you don't believe in God, you have no moral compass. Everything that man does is evil only continually. And if you don't believe that, just read the book of Genesis. God wiped out all of his creation except for eight souls at one point in this earth. I would say he was pretty disappointed. I'm thankful there were eight souls that were still faithful. What, so what it really boils down to is, what do people value in life? With the world, the world would tell you, you know, um, what do you value? I, I would say even God would even want to throw that at you. What do you value in life? I came across uh, a Pew Research, the Pew Research Center actually did this survey. And they asked this one question, is all they asked. What gives meaning or purpose to your life? What gives meaning or purpose to your life? They conducted this survey in 17 countries. So as I came across this, I went down in my research and I found the United States. And it was interesting to see, they only gave you the top five answers. Number one, in the United States, the, mo the, the thing that gives meaning and purpose to people's life in the United States, number one was family. Number two was friends. Number three was material well-being or wealth. Number four, occupation. Number five, faith. Faith. What was really interesting is I decided to check out the other 17 countries because I was curious if anybody would list faith any higher than number five. And I found that in these 16 other countries, faith was never even mentioned. Never made the top five. That's a picture of our world. Faith lists in the top five in 17 countries only once. Matthew 6.21 says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What is important to you? Of these top five, where would you how, how would you list 
What's the top five things in your life that are important to you? Now, of course, you've heard this, and we can sit here in our piety at church, and I'm sure the first we were to take this survey, every one of us would put faith at the top of our list. Uh, you know, it seems like the thing to say right now, but don't say Jesus is the number one priority in your life unless you're willing to put him ahead of your family, unless you're willing to put him ahead of your friends and your material wealth and your job. If you're willing to do that, great. As I stated in Sunday school, when we do that, everyone else benefits. Your job benefits. Your family benefits. Your friends benefit. Because when you put Jesus first, which he should be number one in our lives as believers, when we consider what he's done for us, he gave us his best. Why are we not giving him our best? It's easy to say. Trust me, it's easy to say. It's not so easy to live like Jesus is your highest priority. It doesn't matter what you say. How you live speaks much louder than what you say about how you live. Do people see Jesus in you? That brings us to Jesus' answer. We see how the world would answer it. We see where, what the world would want us to believe about life. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I am the life. The greatest life is a life lived for Jesus. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's why we need to put him first. He loved us and he gave himself for us. What's it say? Greater love hath no man than a, he lay a, his life down for a brother. Jesus laid his life down for his creation. I love what Donald Campbell says. He states that um, the self, he, he's talking about this verse, Galatians 2.20. The, the, the writer of that was Paul. And he says, the self-righteous, self-centered Saul died. See, on the road to Damascus, Saul was setting out to persecute Christians. And then he met Jesus. And Saul died. And Paul was born. Further death with Christ ended Paul's enthronement of self. Saul sat on the throne. Paul got off the throne and put Christ on it. He yielded the throne of his life to another, to Christ. But it was not in his own strength that Paul was able to live the Christian life. The living Christ himself took up his abode in Paul's heart. See, Christ lives in us. He lives in us. But you can't just accept Jesus Christ and then go, okay, now make me do good, Jesus. We have the power there, but we still have to do it. We still have to, there's still uh, things that we have to do. Christ does not operate automatically in a believer's life. It is a matter of living the new life by faith in the Son of God. Well, how do I do that? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Being here this morning shows that you want to have that power. You want uh, that faith. Uh, if you read your Bible, you want that faith. You want that growth. It is in faith and not works or legal obedience that releases divine power to live a Christian life. The idea here is that we live for Jesus and Jesus is seen in our lives. Do not focus on what you're giving up, but rather on what you're gaining 
by living for Christ. I mean, think about it. We gain eternal life. We gain resurrection power. The indwelling Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. We have an indwelling Holy Spirit. They only had him temporarily in the, New Test or in the Old Testament, and it was only for certain people. And blessings abound when we live for Christ. Because of this, we have the power to overcome sin. Romans 6.6 6 says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We gain a better, uh, our, our life gets better. Things in our life, when we live for Christ, uh, like I said, our employment benefits from it. Our marriage benefits from it. Raising our children, we, our kids benefit from it. Our friends benefit from it. Understand that having Jesus in your life, Jesus makes us rich. He makes us rich. In January of 1956, Jim Elliott and four other missionaries gave their lives in Ecuador in their effort to reach the Waodani or Aka Indians. This fierce group was known to attack any outsiders, but the vision for reaching them with the gospel compelled these young men to take the risk. Not, a lo not long after they set up camp near the Waodani village, they were attacked by warriors refusing to defend their own lives with force. The missionaries were ultimately killed. The news flashed around the world and the story of courage and sacrifice challenged many to take up the missionary cause. Even today, Eliot's words live on. Jim Eliot said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Say that again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, life on this earth, to gain what he cannot lose, eternal life. In his very real sense, Jim Elliott and his missionary friends were living the spirit of Christmas. They were willing to give up the comforts of home and promising careers and to ultimately lay down their lives to take the gospel to those who had never heard. They could have fought back to defend themselves, but they chose not to. This is what Jesus did for us in coming to earth. Paul wrote in uh, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Nothing of lasting significance and importance for God is ever accomplished without great sacrifice. Whether it is our time, our talent, our treasure, or even our lives, we must be willing to give up what is temporary for the sake of what is eternal. When we do, we are following the example and pattern of Christ and walking in His steps. That is what victorious Christian living is. Today, we have answered three important questions, looking at how the world answers them and how Jesus answers them. We have undoubtedly seen that the world's answers are foolishness and that God's ways are higher than our ways. Therefore, we, we all should look to Jesus, our Lord and Savior, for these answers. We need to take the highway. 
Jesus shows us that he is the way of salvation, and there is no other way. He tells us that he is the truth, and if we want to know the truth, we simply must spend time with him through his word. And finally, Jesus tells us the best life we can live is a life lived for him. Only when we die to self can we live for him. Jesus clearly is the only way to salvation, to truth, to victorious Christian living. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you'd please stand, I want to offer just a moment of invitation. Every head bowed, every eye closed, no looking around. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know the way. We gave a clear direction this morning on the way. Jesus is the way. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you just slip your hand in the air. I'd like to pray for you. Believer, you do know the way. But are you heading down the road with your headlights on? Do you know the truth? You know the way, but do you know the truth? Do you spend time with your Lord and Savior? Are you getting, have you developed a relationship with Him? And if you have, then are, are, do you have victorious Christian living? Are you living the life? Are you allowing Christ to live through you? See, if we're not doing these things, then we're driving down the road with our headlights off and we'll never be able to show someone else how they can come to know the way, how they can come to have experience a relationship with the truth and how they can have victorious Christian living. If you're here this morning and you know that you could be doing more, maybe your headlights are, are off or maybe they're just dimmed right now and you don't have your brights on, that's you this morning. Would you slip your hand into the air? I just want to, amen, praise the Lord. All over the room. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord in heaven, I just, Father, if we close out this service, Father, I, many hands went up in reference to wanting to do more for you, to live more, to turn our headlights on, Father, and to be the Christians you've called us to be. We were not saved so that we could just simply sit back and wait for eternity. We were saved to, tell, tell, to take the gospel to the lost world so more people can come to know uh, their eternal destination, so they could come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, so they could spend eternity in life rather than in death. Father God, I just pray now that you just be with each and every one who slipped their hands up this, this morning. I pray, Father, that you will give them the confidence, the boldness to preach your word, to share the gospel. Help them to have the boldness to leave their brights on when they see someone coming the other way and to be the light, to walk in the light as ye are in the light, Father. Help us to be doers of your word, not hearers only. Help us to be the Christians you've called us to be, to, to shine our lights for you and to take the gospel wherever we might be. This is our mission field. This is the, here in the Bitterroot Valley, Father. Help each and every one here to share the gospel when they have an opportunity. Give them the boldness and the confidence to do so. We thank you again for your word. Thank you, Father, for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And 
for his shed blood on the cross of Calvary that we can have eternal life. Now help us to live a life that brings honor and glory to you. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen.